0: You're about to join Niels Kostrup-Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series.
1: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I. Niels Castle larsen where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Jerry last week, where we were able to answer a lot of technical questions relating to the use of average true range and how to use it as part of an initial and trailing stop-loss rule, as well as a broader discussion about alternatives. Also, um, if you uh, missed the Wednesday episode, please note that we've shifted to a new series called The Ideas Lab, where Kevin Coldiron, the author of the book The Rise of Kerry, hosted another author, namely Antti Ilmanen of AQR, who just released his latest book called Investing and Mid-Low Expected Returns, which dives into all the challenges that investors are facing right now, and that was really a great conversation. So I really encourage you to go back and listen to these episodes if you've missed them this week but of course not until you have finished with Rob and me today. Now Rob it is always a great pleasure to be with you. I hope you um, hope you're doing well. We have a great and wonderful lineup not just of questions but actually a very exciting uh, and in-depth analysis I think that you have prepared.
0: Um, So how are things where you are? Yeah, they're good. I must say, um, I actually have the new Anti Ilmonen book on my to-do reading list because uh, I actually loved his his epic work um, from a few years ago, which is on my shelf, and uh, I'm really looking forward to to read to reading uh, his new book because he's a very he's an excellent author. La- lays things out in a very clear structure and it was full of interesting ideas. So, um, so yeah, no, it's it's going well actually. Um, so last night, myself and my wife, and my youngest daughter went to see the new Top Gun film. Uh, which i have to uh, i not often I, I kind of make kind of non-finance recommendations on this podcast but i have to say it is absolutely amazing and it's one of those films you just have to see on the big screen um and uh, it's my understanding that most of the um film was not it's not like special effects they actually are in jet fighters so uh, and you can really tell it's it's just just that's stunning that's stunning um so yeah that's that a big thumbs up from me. Fantastic. I'm um, actually, I've
1: uh, tried to convince my uh, son, who's visiting us at the moment, to go and see it with me. So uh, now that you've uh, given that. Warm felt uh, recommendation. I'm definitely going to drag him in and and see it, that's for sure. Although he does say, well, then I need to see number one first. I say, well, I don't remember number one. It's so long ago. So anyways, as uh, a little sort of uh, update for for the week, it's not really a weekly update. I want to talk about something slightly different because as has already been published on so many financial Channels. Um, There were very few places for investors to seek shelter during the first half of 2022, at least in many of the traditional asset classes like stocks and bonds. Um, But what about hedge funds? The alternative way to invest in stocks and bonds using strategies like long-short, relative value, event-driven, merger arbitrage and multi-strategy, just to name a few favourites. Well, unlike what the name suggests, none of these seem to have offered any hedge so far this year. And even a strategy like long volatility, which has been seen as the ultimate solution to get the best protection against equity bear markets, seem to have failed in delivering on that promise. In other words, the first half of 2022 has been a period where many of the typical diversifiers, including bonds, simply did not help protect investors' portfolio. So why is that? I don't have a good answer to this question and I'm not sure if we could just say that the obvious change in the investment environment is the reappearance of inflation. But what if it is? Then the problem may be here to stay. But instead, I will offer a simple observation and belief that I've had and held for many years. You see, I have always been puzzled when investors told me that they were seeking to diversify their stock and bond portfolio by investing in hedge fund strategies like the ones mentioned above. Because at the end of the day, you are investing in the same underlying assets that you're trying to diversify away from. Yet this has really been the one and the most popular way for investors to feel better protected. Of course, I do understand that the investment process within these strategies are not the same as a long-only but still, if you're expecting to get returns that are truly different and during certain periods are even negatively correlated to the portfolios of stocks and bonds you hold, wouldn't it be more logical to expect that you need to invest in different markets to the ones you are trying to diversify away from? In addition, of course, to using a different investment process. Anyway, I just want to mention this um, because I believe that at the core, one of the core reasons actually why strategies like trend following has delivered positive returns During equity crises like the 87 crash, the tech bubble, the great financial crisis, COVID-19, and now the Ukrainian crisis, is not least because we do invest in truly different markets in addition to being able to go both long and short. So Rob, that was my little trend-following rant from this uh, (laughs) for today. Um, What have you been uh, following closely since we last spoke a few weeks ago?
0: Yeah, it's interesting actually because I remember people saying exactly the same thing pre two thousand and seven, and then in two thousand and eight, became clear that many so-called uncorrelated hedge fund strategies were actually effectively um, short volatility. You know, so so when risk rose, they they also got hammered, and uh, you know, it's it's curious that we have to relearn the same lessons fourteen years later. I mean, doesn't seem it seems like yesterday to you and I, but I guess there are probably a lot of people active in the markets now who who was still in high school in 2008 or possibly even kindergarten. So, you know, they're they're not going to remember this stuff, but uh, I guess that's one of the advantages of being old, if if not necessarily wise, right? (laughs) Uh, Okay. Very quick performance update for me. So, yeah, Um, because it's not that long since I've been on the show. Exactly, yeah. um, Yeah, and that's because I'm taking my usual long summer break, so I won't won't be back with you guys until September. Um, But, yeah, so so looking at Q2, because Q2 basically finished on Thursday, which is quite neat. Actually, my performance in Qt it's it's a very exciting number. I'm very happy to report it to you. It's exactly zero percent. Uh, so so q one Q one was a good quarter. I made uh, as I said before about twenty seven percent. Q two, I made nothing. Uh, and basically what's happened is I think the last time I was on the podcast, I was pretty close to a high watermark. mark um, and since so then the, the kind of following couple of weeks, you know weren't great, to be honest. Um, so a kind of gradual uh, lo- losing of money. Um, probably lost like I don't know six six percent something like that down from my high water mark so you know it's not brilliant but on the other hand it's kind of roughly what I'd expect given the, the kind of risk I'm currently taking so uh, so it's not the end of the world um, just having a, a quick look at um, I've created a new a new report actually which which sort of tells me um, what the kind of market moves have been over most recent periods and like how surprising those are so um so that's kind of quite an interesting uh, report to look at, which gives us some context. Um, because of what I can't tell you is, <laughs> annoyingly, I can't tell you where I actually made a loss money in Q2, um, because I've managed to break my p and Um, report. So <laughs> I need to do some bug fixing before I can give you that information. But but what I can tell you is, is a, on a more general level, that uh, um, over the last three months, um, the the worst market in the world that I follow, at least, was the Brazilian stock market. Which was down about twenty five percent, which which is about nearly three standard deviations. Um, the um, what else didn't do well? Uh, copper didn't do very well. The pound, the cable dollar, pound dollar didn't do very well. I think that's the kind of people know that. Um, on the upside, interestingly, the Russian ruble did very well over the last few months. I guess it's kind of bounced back from uh, from what happened. In the first three months, although we could argue there's that really like a real market that's going on there because of the constraints on, on capital flows and so on. Uh, and if I take a slightly longer view, so look at the last six months, which kind of ties back to to what you were saying about, you know, during the first six months of the year, wh- where could people hide? So if you did have a crystal ball <laughs> <laughs> um, then uh, and you were a long-only investor, um, the, the, all the markets that have that done well over the last six months, even with some of them having some pullback over the last couple of weeks, I mean, it's heating oil, it's gasoline, it's double TI crude, it's Brent crude, it's natural gas. You know, it's just, just, just still, you know, the energy markets, that huge Q1 they had is still putting them right up there. Um, and uh, interestingly, the markets that have done badly, the most badly, um, both in percentage terms and also vol adjusted terms, um, and that's uh, our old friends, Ethereum and Bitcoin, um, both of which are down, you know, phew, 60, 70, 75% year to date. Uh, and even though they're extremely volatile, on a vol-adjusted basis, they're still, um, those are still big moves for them. Uh, so then very quickly, lo- let's turn from the rear view mirror to the to the uh, front windshield and, and see where where we're heading or where we are. Um, just looking at my current risk and my current positions, uh, my risk is pretty low, which is kind of what I'd expect because I've had some some losses. So there's obviously trends that have it's felt are ended, so I've got reduced forecasts, so I'm not not really doing a huge amount with the portfolio. My risk is running at, let's say, about um, a third of uh, my long-term average at the moment. Um, my biggest short is the US 10-year ultra bond. Um, I've also got shorts in silver, uh, S&P 400, uh, Dow Jones, uh, the DAX. Um, so it's so kind of interesting there to see both a bond, a metal. Right. And some equities on the short side there, which just goes to show it's an interesting kind of environment. It's a correlated right? environment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then on the long side, I'm still long uh, WTI crude. Um, I'm still long corn, uh, iron. Uh, since I became Iron Man a few months ago, uh, I've been I've been long iron. I'm still long iron. Um, so, so, yeah, it's not a, again, I think I said this before, it's not a very, in the first few months of the year, the portfolio positioning was extremely clear. Now it's more mixed, there's there's less obvious signals going on, so I've got quite low risk, and I've also got positions that don't really tell a very clear story, because, you know, there isn't, I think at the moment, there isn't necessarily that clear a story out there. Yeah, I completely agree.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, in a sense, you could say, well, I mean, if you look at just some of the market moves that we've seen in the last month, um, it's... uh, I'm actually a little bit, I mean, I'm positively surprised actually how uh, the early numbers are coming in, but I'll get to that in a second. I mean, I think generally speaking from my point of view, uh, it probably will be a little bit of a mixed month for trend following strategies in in June. Um, it was an eventful month for sure. We had some meaningful corrections in many of the large liquid markets um, that are in classical trend-following fol- uh, portfolios. Maybe the most striking uh, were sell-offs in things like energies and grains and soft I mean, g- cotton down 30%. Equities, of course, uh, definitely lost some, uh, some value. And then, um, you know, um, I think... Only uh, we had sort of rising prices in in uh, meats. I think uh, also the dollar obviously had a little bit of a boost. Uh, and in terms of rising prices, which wasn't great for trend followers, uh, was the uh, fixed income uh, sector towards the end of the month of June. But overall, on the month, actually, fixed income was uh, probably still down a little bit. But anyway, as a consequence of all of these counter trend uh, price moves, performance. It's going to, in my view, mainly be impacted on signal speed. I mean, did models uh, reduce uh, because of changes to to signal strength? Um, But also the risk management that we overlay these models uh, is something that could have triggered some reductions uh, as as the month got a little bit more difficult uh, towards the end of it. Um, We had pickup in volatility, maybe even pickup in correlations, even though that would have been short-term timeframes if you were to pick that up, of course. And in terms of profit or performance attributions, I would imagine that a lot of sectors uh, had a little bit of a negative impact on, on performance, except for things like fixed income and currencies for the month as a whole. I think they did pretty well to help probably have a little bit of a Positive bias at the end of the day for the industry. So, in terms of the overall performance numbers, numbers that I'm expecting to see is probably small negatives and small positives uh, in in the broader scheme of things. My trend barometer finished the month uh, at around fifty, um, so that's still okay, and you know confirms probably the early numbers we've seen. Which, by the way, I'm going to shift the order a little bit of the podcast. I'm going to. Break down the performance numbers, uh, just like we do today, uh, which is right after the review of of perform uh, of the uh, of the industry it just fits better, I think, in the net, in in how we structure the episode. So, anyways, June looks like the Beta Fifty Index is going to be up one point one nine percent, and that's up sixteen point six percent for the year. The Soshock Gen CTA Index up one point seven eight percent for the month, up twenty one point three six for the month uh, for for the year. Sorry. And the Gen Trend Index up 2.85% for the month, up 2933 for the year. And finally, the Short-Term Traders Index up one51 for the month, up 11.2% for the year. In contrast, we had traditional assets like the MSCI World Index down 8.77% in June, down now 20, 2121 uh, The S&P Total Return was down 825 quarter, down 20% for the year. And the world government bond index, uh, no relief there. Down another 1.27% for the uh, for the month, um, and and uh, and even if we broaden it out a little bit and we look at something like the multi alternative risk premium index from SOCGen, that was also down in June, down 1.81%, um, and still up a little bit, uh, two and a quarter for the year. So, as I said in my intro. Um, you know, this really has been a year where a lot of these traditional hedge fund strategies didn't work, and uh, hopefully that will open people's eyes to the value of uh, of trend following and how it's different from quote-unquote traditional hedge funds. Anyways, let's move on, dive into some questions, and then we're going to dive into your topic, uh, Rob. So the first question that came in, and by the way, thanks so much for sending them in. Um, first question that came in from uh, Andrew. Andrew writes, Love the content and the weekly uh, on the weekly CTU podcast. I re-listen to them uh, each week. Plus, the Global Macro podcast is eminently shareable. I use a long, short, moving, average crossover system. Question. In your opinion, is it best to wait for the crossover as my exit, or should I place a stop, uh, for example, a 3ATR, as you would within the channel breakout system. I've been reading deeply uh, in Andreas Klino's work and Rob Carver's work on moving average crossovers for an answer. I'm curious uh, what you and others on your podcast would suggest. Thanks for your comments. Um,
0: Yeah, so Rob, well, since you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so I think um, you can do either. Either's fine. The, the thing I would say is if you're going to use a stop, so if you're going to enter the trade with a moving average crossover and then exit with a with a stop based on either ATR or standard deviation multiple, it doesn't really matter, um, to make sure that the, the kind of width of that stop is calibrated to the expected holding period of the, the moving average. So for example, if you're using a really slow moving average, you don't want a very tight stop because then you'll have this weird situation where you'll wait ages and ages for a trend to begin get into the trend and then like two days later be stopped out that's where you need these uh these so-called loose pants okay um the the so conversely if you are trading relatively quickly you've got a relatively fast moving average crossover you don't want to be in a situation where you 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 know you a trade begin a trend begins you jump in the trend ends but you're still in the trend because your stop loss is way too wide you need to to calibrate those two things to get them to be give you this rough the same holding period if you do that, then um, the performance of those two alternatives is not that different. Although for what it's worth, I, I see a slight edge for the um, the moving average crossover. In other words, enter the trade on the moving average crossover, exit the trade on the same moving average crossover has a slight performance edge over the using the stop loss. Um, and there's also a question of, of, I think with this, it really does come down to preferences. So the way that that my mind works and the way that I code up my systems and stuff like that, it's much much easier for me to use the moving average crossover both as the entry and the exit signal. Um, for other people, it may be much much easier, and they may find it easy to understand if they use the moving average crossover as the entry signal and the stop as the exit signal. Um, so, so um, I mean, interestingly, for example, um, and we'll talk about this later. But I was writing some code to to test a, a stop loss system, which is not something I normally do. Um, and my code to run the, the the kind of moving average entry and exit was like three lines of code, and my code with the stop loss was 150 lines of code, um, because it's just very alien to the way that my particular trading environment works. But I do know, for example, if you were using you know some of the more common um, pro computer programs that people use to to construct systematic trading systems that think very much in terms of discrete entries and exits, it would probably be easier to code up the stop loss version. So. You know, use whatever you're comfortable with, but as I said, just be really careful. If you are going to use a stop loss, make sure you've got the, the time frame calibrated properly. So
1: both of these methods, Rob, um, you know, using a moving average or using ATR, it doesn't really give you a 100% certainty as to where you're going to get out because volatility could change and you don't quite know where the moving averages are crossing over. Could you, and I'm just speculating, I, I've never, never looked at this myself, but could you marry a moving average crossover entry with a price Stop loss, meaning like a dungeon channel, um, would that even be possible?
0: I mean, it's possible. The question is whether it, it makes sense. Um, to, to me, I, I would be really uncomfortable with that because the problem is then you've you you, you you've basically got two separate kind of trading rules, a moving average and uh, whatever that other thing you said was. Um, that's two sets of rules you've got to understand. You've got to fit. You've got parameters. You've got overfitting potential and so on and so forth. Um, whereas, you know, with, with with the moving average, well, that's a single rule. If you add on the stop loss to that well the stop loss should be calibrated according to holding period rather than sort of fitted for performance so um you know and, and stop loss is a it's relatively intuitive to understand when a stop loss is going to be hit right so you know um you can do that i just really yeah. don't like it at no all, no that's fair
1: that's fair it's only because um i think last week when i spoke with jerry who obviously uses price channels i i do think and i agree with him that one of the beauties of that simple breakout system is you always know where you're getting in, where you're getting out. There's no second guessing. It, it, you know, you can see it in advance, right? I do think that that is quite comforting for some people to know that. But anyways, let's. Well, that's, yeah. But that's, but well, that's true of a, of any anything,
0: any stop, right?
1: Well, the ATR you know. could change, right? If well, it depends on how you define the ATR. Dep- of course, well, know. it depends on yeah. what
0: you do with sure. your ATR once sure. you're in the trade, yeah. right? Whether you Fair. whether you do this, you know, dare I say those two words this early in the episode? No, 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 targeting. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Okay, fair enough.
1: All right, let's move on. Here's a question from Greg. Greg writes, Hello, I was listening to your episode 197, especially regarding the question about entering all existing positions uh, for a new account or new money. Your reasons for doing that uh, make total sense if it is important to the manager to ensure that all accounts perfectly mirror performance uh, of the overall portfolio. However, I think you missed the most important reason not to do that. That is simply that entering a new position at some point after the initial entry signal does not follow the rules of the system. Through backtesting, you may find that profitability of the strategy drops significantly if you enter a position later than the actual entry bar. Um, I say again, entering any position after the actual entry bar is not following the rules of the system as they were designed based on backtesting. Cheers
0: from Greg. So, what are your thoughts? I mean, this is one reason why I prefer my sort of so-called continuous trading system to a discrete trading system. Because you know, with a continuous trading system, you basically produce a set of optimal positions that you should hold. And then, if an, if a new investor comes in, they should have the same expo- that same exposure. And therefore, um, you know, you then basically just have to give them a propor you know buy into those positions or selling to those positions in the same proportion according to the capital increase you've got it's very straightforward this this point doesn't come up um i i mean i would say i can kind of see um a point of view but i also would say well you know th- but if if to the taking the trading system in abstract if the trading system is long a particular position well then implicitly it's forecasting that the price of that thing is going to go up and of course it would have been better if you that three months ago when the the thing initially went long because it's possible you would have missed on a rally that's happened so far in fact in expectation if your trading system makes money you're always better investing on day zero than day 100 right um but but the the point is that the investor coming in doesn't doesn't have that option they don't have the option of getting in a time machine and going back in time and saying well i i wish i'd put my money in ctas on i don't know the 5th of November to 2021, which was a nice little drawdown, and I'd have made 40%, you know, um, since then, they don't have that option. They're, they're coming in today. And and I think the, the question is for the managers today, what what set of positions should they be given? Well, they should be given the set of positions that, that that kind of represent what our forecasts are. And our current forecast in this market is that, yes, we are still long this market because we still think it's going to go up. So um, I, I kind of, I can see where Greg's coming from, but frankly, I disagree with him. Yeah, I mean, the, the way
1: I would say, in addition to that, I would say, well, you know, you're right, that if if, if it was a long trade and the market had already moved in your favor, that's obviously uh, not great. On the other hand, if you're trading 50 markets, I'm sure that some markets will be below the entry point and that might be a benefit, right? So that's one thing, but actually I think that the whole point of this um, and, and my view on on this, Greg, would be, I think as an individual investor for your own money, you can probably do exactly what you said. But I think for any manager that has to reflect, as you already pointed out it yourself and and completely agree with, when you're dealing with external money, for you know as such, then we have no choice. In my view, uh, we just have to make sure everybody has the same exposure uh, on a relative spa- uh, basis. So, um, but you know, fair point. All right. Then we have a question from Algernon. I think. I'm not sure I'm sure pronouncing that right, but anyways. Um and
0: uh so this is this is one of those very old-fashioned British names that I think you should pronounce it Algernon. Algernon.
1: Okay. All right, hmm. cool. All right. Anyways, it is a UK name because um the investor is from um the UK. He writes, I'm an average UK personal investor. I don't like the word average. It makes people sound You're a traditional, you're a normal UK personal investor, Algernon. Using tax wrappers like Zip and ISA for most of my investments, I'm finding it extremely difficult um, to uh, adopt part of my portfolio to trend following because of few usage funds that are available. Uh, You end up paying fees on top of fees, um, so it gets expensive. Uh, The US trend following ETFs are not available to UK investors. Is there anything obvious that I'm missing to be part um, or to be able to get into these funds at a reasonable cost? Now, maybe just to before
0: you give, because no, no, re- I think you should. This is for definitely for you. Well, it's
1: not really for me because I have no idea what a SIP and an ISA is. So I don't know. All right, well but- let me
0: let me let me answer those very quickly <laughs> and then you can you can answer the question. As, um SIP is a self-invested personal pension and an ISA is an individual savings account. So they're, they're, they're kind of two main tax sheltered ways for UK vet- investors to invest in in whatever. Uh, and the key point is that um um they have some restrictions on what you can hold within them. Um, so you, you know, you can't necessarily hold everything in a SIP or everything in an ISA. So for example, it's quite difficult to hold futures inside a SIP because I would love to have my, my futures trading inside a SIP or an ISA because then I wouldn't pay, you know, capital gains tax when I make profits, but, but it's extremely difficult and expensive to do that. So in fact, as I have the, my future trading account is, is you know completely exposed to tax, and then I do my other investments in these other kinds of accounts. With that in mind, I, I still think you should answer the question because you're probably more well, familiar with the European usage landscape of trend following funds than I am. So,
1: sure, no, absolutely. So when, when it comes to sort of, sort of uses fund, if if that's the only thing you can own in the in the trend-following space, meaning you can't go uh, to an offshore fund in a SIP and an ISA, which I think what you're saying, uh, Rob, is that's probably unlikely you would be allowed to do that. So if you have to stay with a usage fund, um, yeah, I think there are about, you know, 10 or 20 uh, decent usage fund in the trend-following space. Um, but you're right, of course, Algernon, that they are more expensive than than offshore funds. And that's that's the challenge. It is more expensive to do an an onshore European fund um, for the service providers and 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 everything else. And some, of course, um, also may have to. I certainly know that in 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 our case, we we had to restrict the leverage we use uh, to stick with to stay within um, the uh, the usage framework. So there are some differences to maybe some of the performance numbers that you see um, published by by managers. But I think you can find. Uh, a decent set of choices uh, still but what I would say is definitely be very um, pay close attention to the costs and also within each user's fund there will be different share classes um, and depending on what platform you're buying them through it's not all share classes that are uh, available on all uh, platforms Uh, I certainly know that from personal experience Um, so yeah but I think if you do your homework hopefully you can find some some funds that uh, fits your uh, your appetite, so to speak. And by the way, the, obviously, if, if you do that, there's obviously a great thing for for UK investors in general if they have uh, some of these pension accounts. Um, it's a good way for them to get exposure to trend following um, because of the tax advantages that Rob just uh, talked about. Anyway, question for from Michael. Michael writes, may I propose a question for Rob Carver? You may indeed, Michael. Has Rob considered refocusing his impressive skill set towards intraday trading? You know, we talked last what? week, uh, last time, Rob, about uh, are these people that you know that writes in? But there we are. This is oh, really is it, very- Or is it
0: actually just me? Is it actually just me? <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: Anyways. So he goes, Michael goes on to say, transaction costs may be difficult to overcome, but for someone with a relatively small account and decades of experience, the low timeframe seems like the more lucrative way to go. Secondly, for Jerry, I really enjoyed listening to Jerry's recent talk about his use of ATI. Could Jerry say a few words about how he enters a new trade after he has just exited the first? So obviously I'll take that with Jerry next time he comes on, but let's stick with the first question
0: then. Um could could you be tempted to look at shorter term time frames so this is my my chance to plug my book isn't it the once once per episode opportunity um to do yeah, that absolutely um so yeah part uh i think it's part four of my new book is about trading faster although i have to say i don't get down to intraday it's probably holding periods of on averaging about three or four days um and uh, which is you know is much faster than the, the normal systems we're looking at which you, you're looking at holding periods of several weeks minimum several months even several years in some cases um so so i do i do look at it and um i actually um originally when i started writing the book i thought well i'm going to include a mean reversion fast trading system i'm going to include a trend following fast trading system and you know what the fast the the uh, fast trend following system i couldn't get it to work um, I couldn't. I couldn't get. There. So there are actually in the academic literature some well-known kind of intraday effects. Um, so, for example, uh, I, from memory, if, if the, the the market's gone up overnight and you buy and then hold to the close, then that's a profitable strategy before costs. There's a few of these, you know, anomalies in the literature, and and also um, uh, so Soggen has done some um, some interesting research on on this area as well. Um, but I wasn't able to, to, to um, partly because of data limitations, so I, my minimum data frequency is one hour. For some of these things, you really need minute-by-minute minute data. I wasn't able to reproduce those results. Um, and the other thing is, of course, that's, this is all before costs. And the problem with, with any kind of trend-following strategy, particularly one that's trading very quickly, is you need to get in the trade immediately, so you can't sort of do what I, I currently do, which is kind of wait patiently to execute an order. Um, and therefore, kind of reduce my trading costs. Um, you, you basically have to cross the spread straight away, which, which you know, w- once you factor that in, it's extremely difficult to well, it's impossible basically to, to make money um, with with these systems. Um, now, with the mean reversion systems, I, I did actually manage to make those profitable. In fact, I made them extremely profitable. Uh, and I can't remember if I talked about this before on the podcast, but basically the way the system works is effectively it's a mean reversion system, but it never goes against the prevailing trend, no, right, long yes. the medium-term trend. So what that means effectively, if you imagine a market is gradually trending up in a channel, then you basically end up buying buying it when it dips off the channel and selling it when it gets over the channel, but you never go short, so you're never opposing the trend, uh, and that that makes it a much a much safer and um, and nicer system from a risk management perspective. Um, but the reason why these things work even after trading costs is because it's a mean reversion system. Mm. You can actually trade it entirely using limit orders. So that that's that's um, what's involved in that. And I'm pretty sure I've discussed it before, so I won't go into yeah, great. Yeah, no, 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 that's
1: fine. We talked a little bit about it last time, but that's fine. I uh, think it makes. I mean, sense. I mean,
0: it's important to say that that I think Michael's made an interesting comment when he says impressive skill set. So even if my skill set is impressive, which you know we can we can have a debate about, um, but my skill set does not cover intraday trading. And I do believe that that is almost a separate domain and a separate skill set. Um, and when I'm talk- doing lectures on this subject, I often like to say, well, you know, Warren Buffett is probably the best long term investor in the world. But if you put Warren Buffett on a high frequency trading desk, he would be completely lost because his impressive skill set does not translate to that domain. Um, you know, and 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 the reverse is probably true, right? I mean, the, the reverse is definitely true. You couldn't take a high frequency trader and get them to do what Warren Buffett doesn't do it as well as he does. So I think there is something to be said for, especially as a, as a one man person, you know, one man fund, effectively for for focusing on the areas of the market where you you know you're you've got you've got the skills and you can deal with them and also where you're not competing with people with much deeper pockets and you know faster technology you know the faster you trade the more likely you are to be running up against high frequency trading firms and other people uh, and it, and uh, it's going to be you know I can't compete against those guys I don't have co-located servers with you know with code written in in C C++ or assembly code and uh, and a team of of um you know Um, experts on on working on it continuously refitting my models i don't have that so it makes sense for me to stick to the the slower domain where i've got the skills but also the ability to actually make profits yeah
1: i think actually you touched on a couple of good points um and and i think that's worth uh, mentioning that i think that um, and we've often discussed it on the podcast that there are very few uh, shorter term managers who have been successful for the long uh for the long run. Uh, clearly people firms that have made huge investments in, as you say, infrastructure and execution and all of those things. Whilst on the other hand you could say that there has there are definitely a few uh, more trend followers, longer term trend followers that have been around for decades and where the system still works. So Our data, when we do the research on our side, and and I will say that we're not trying to come up with the best short-term trading model uh, when we do this analysis. We are still just using end-of-day data and so on and so forth. So maybe it's a little bit of an unfair comparison. Um, But we never find uh, that any short-term timeframes uh, are better in terms of consistently uh, performing better than a longer-term trend following system. And the other thing is, so I think the, the, the dependability is very important. I think definitely longer term timeframes are more dependable. But then there's also the whole lifestyle, um, you know, um, involved in that. I mean, being short term, even if you can code it, I mean, it's different from being a
0: long term manager with a few trades every day, I would imagine. I'm actually. Can I be very cheeky, um, Niels? Because I, I the second half of that question, I know it's for Jerry, but I think I can say something intelligent about it. So you ask it, and then when Jerry comes on, he can give his take on it. Okay. So then we say. Secondly, for Jerry and Rob, I really enjoyed listening to
1: Jerry recently talk about his use of ATR. Oh,
0: we all we all love listening to Jerry because he's got such a great a great accent.
1: Could well. could Jerry or Rob say a few words about how? They enter a new trade after they just exhibited uh, the first. Is it true that Jerry or Rob may end up repeating the same trade several times in a row, even if they are getting stopped out on each of them? Or, or do they have any rules to prevent this from happening? Thanks for a great show. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hear it, Rob.
0: Um, yeah, so again, this is another reason why I don't actually, by, by my with my continuous trading system, I don't have this problem. Okay, because I will basically, you know, if let's just assuming you're entering an exit on a moving average. If the moving average goes positive, you buy, you exit when it goes short. If it then subsequently goes, you go short when it goes short, right? You you will never have a neutral position Um, and then, you know, ignoring rounding issues. Uh, And then when it goes long, you buy again. So you're always kind of going long, short, long, short, long, short. Now the issue is if, if you've got a moving average system with a stop loss as your exit, whether it be ATR or standard deviation, it doesn't matter, then the issue can be this. Your moving average gets you into a trade, so you're long. The stop gets you out. At that point, the moving average may have gone bearish, which is brilliant. That means you'll go straight into a short trade. But what if the moving average is still bullish? It's a bit confusing. Like, what, what should you do? Should you Exactly. so in my um when i when I've developed these um, systems with stop losses, purely as a research exercise in futures because I don't trade them in futures, but I do trade them in stocks, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, what I've done is put in a rule saying, well, you know once once you've been stopped out of a trade, you will not enter that trade on the same side again, okay? So basically what will happen in practice is moving average goes long, you buy, you get stopped out, moving average is still long you will not do anything then. You'll stay flat until the moving average goes short. And at that point, you will put on a short position. And of course, if the moving average never goes short for some reason, you'll you'll never, you know, but unless you're trading extremely slowly, that, that's unlikely to happen. So that that's kind of the way I deal with it. Um, because to me, it's not logical to, to kind of get back into the same trade again, having been stopped out. It doesn't make any sense to me, at least. But I would be interested to hear Jerry's take on that, definitely, because I'll be honest, because it's not the kind of system I trade You know, it's not something I thought a great deal about. Um, So for me, it was like, well, to me, it doesn't make sense to stay in the trade. But but maybe maybe you you just keep kind of putting your metaphorically putting your fishing rod back in back in the lake. Um, and hoping that, that you know, at some point you, you're going to get a bite from a big fat fish.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think generally speaking from a trend-following point of view, we all want to take every single trade, right? So there shouldn't really be any reason for not taking it. Uh, we'll let Jerry talk about it next time he's on, of course, because I do think there were some rules back in the old original turtle rules about, um, you know, not entering a trade if it was a winner and uh, or uh, or lose or whatever it was. I can't remember specifically. Yeah. Um, but but what I wanted to ask you about, Rob, because you talk about moving average systems not being kind of having this neutral zone like a dungeon channel where you can be in kind of neutral land. But then on the other hand, if you combined, say, four moving average crossover systems, then two could be long and two could be short. So, in fact, you would be neutral is that kind of what you do? Yeah, or? I mean, it,
0: it's yeah, and that's exactly what I do. I mean, mathematically, um, my none of my signals are ever exactly zero. Right. Okay. It would be an amazing coincidence. But some of my signals are so small that that I that, that I wouldn't take a position. Or if I was, I mean, my I've got quite a small account. But imagine hypothetically, I had a you know a hundred million dollar account. Some of my it's still gonna be the case that my forecasts on some markets would get small enough that, that that it would not be even big enough to have a single contract of exposure. Now that doesn't mean I'm neutral on that market. I'm still I still want it to be long, but the signal is so weak that it doesn't kind of come out as a single futures contract. So in in reality, especially if you're trading with a small account, a lot of the time I am flat. In fact, if I, you know, at the moment I've got 160 markets in my portfolio, I've got positions in I don't know 15 of them. So, you know, conceptually that's 145 markets I don't I don't have an opinion on because the the forecast is is very weak. Um, and the dynamic optimization I do makes it a bit more complicated than that, but that's what's happening. Um, now just very quickly, if I may. Um, so I, I did say that, that I, um, I do run this uh, stock based system on my stock trading portfolio my UK, I trade UK stocks with a, basically with a, a value filter to buy. And then I have a stop loss to get out. That's the way that works. Uh, and it's systematic, but not automated. Um, And I noticed actually very interestingly, because what I do is I I basically rebalance it roughly every month, but, or when, when things get stopped out. So a few, quite a few things got stopped. Well, three stocks got stopped out recently, like last week, because you know, the market's going down, it kind of makes sense. Um, So I pulled up my value filter and the first three stocks that came up that I didn't already hold were stocks I actually sold back in February. So I, I thought, Oh, that's interesting. And that I, th- I, I in putting together the rules of this little system, I'd never thought about how I would deal with this situation. So I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to buy these. But just out of curiosity, when I sold them back in February, have they fallen in price since then? And they all had. So basically, I the system's done something quite neat, which is sell in February, and then now you know it's been stopped out of some other positions, and now it's buying them back at a much lower level. So you know that's kind of nice. Um, but on the other hand, it it does feel a little bit weird in a sense because, um, you know, but that's because I'm us- the system I'm using is a bit weird in the sense that it's using a value on the one hand and a stop loss on the other, which are quite different things, but that's not that different from moving a moving average and a stop loss, which again, can do quite different things and causes confusion. So, you know, personally, for me, it's much simpler to use the same thing for entry and exit because when you add on the stop loss, it add- you get all these questions coming up, which, which, you know, you have to think about quite carefully. Um, And uh, for for me it's simpler not to think about those, but I can understand why people like, as you say, the simplicity of a stop loss, because you know when you're getting out exactly. Um, But for me it's simpler not to have one.
1: Just our curiosity, um, and maybe it's not that uh, important for people listening to us, but I'm just curious myself. Um, For you to go, because I imagine you have uh, a number of kind of combinations of parameters to get you to a full position, So the easiest way to think about that was if if you were in a price, if you only used like price for your like a uh, price channel, you could say, okay, I'm buying at the 10 day uh, high, 20 day high, 30 day, and and if you did that 20 times, you would have 10 step, sorry, 20 steps to get to a full position. In terms of your steps to get to a full position, can you is that quantifiable in the same way in terms of how many of these confirmations are voting in the same direction um, before you get there?
0: Um, it would be possible to kind of reverse engineer that kind of logic out. So I, I would be able to, and actually when I was working at AHL, this is one thing that we did was we actually sort of said, well, if the price goes to this level, what will our position be? Um, and in fact,
1: Well, that's not my question. My question is right, just okay. to say, okay, for you to get to a full position, forget about, you know, is, you know, let me give you an example. In the old days um, at, at the firm I work for, we had very few steps to get to a full position, right? Today we have many, many, many more, you know, probably more than 50 uh, small combinations of parameters before we get to a full position or a full signal. doesn't even have to be, a, you know, so a full signal. And, and the question, the reason why I, I raised that is because of the earlier question in terms of the risk of being, you know, whipped in and out. Uh, it's, you Meaning when you have only one, you know, one uh, breakout system, for example, of course the risk of being whipped around is, is much higher than if you had 20. So I'm just curious to gauge... What you think about that, and and where you are for your own trading? Is it you know five? Is it ten? Is it a hundred? Before you get to that, because it tells you about the continuous kind of system, uh, how responsive, I guess, it is uh, to some extent.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I th- or how off- binary, I should off- say, maybe. Yeah, well, yeah. so offhand, I think I've got about 45, 50 50 okay, yeah, so signals. Yeah, um, but that's the maximum. So. That would be for something that's very cheap to trade. Things that are more expensive to trade, i take some of those out. Um, so but it gives people a- an
1: idea of when we talk about these things that we're not jumping into a, a full position uh, like in, no, no. In, in a day or two, right? It can take yeah. several weeks before we get to that. And that obviously is something that's based on all the research you've done, all the research we've done, and I'm sure uh, all of our peers, that these systems tend to do best when they... Um, are a little bit slower in speed, um, which obviously also makes them longer term, I guess you could say. All right, well, let's move on to a question from a fellow Dane called Anas. Hello, Anas. Thanks for a great show, a question I've been pondering and would like to understand. I've heard you mention on the show how the majority of the profits in trend-following style systems come from long trades. I'm curious on this. Roughly, what percentage come from the long side in your experience, and into which asset classes, uh, if any, tend to show a higher than average share of profits from the long side? Interesting question. We haven't talked about that
0: for a while, actually. What is your
1: experience, Rob?
0: I think it's curious because um, I had to tell you how to pronounce Algernon, and I'll be honest, I would have pronounced that name with a D, without the silent D. I didn't know it was a silent D. I just said Anders. Yeah,
1: yeah, okay. It's a soft D, Anas. Okay. soft Yes. Okay. It's a softie, yeah. okay.
0: Okay. Anyway, um, so the, the problem we have with answering this question is, is we're, we're basically looking at history in which many financial assets, stocks and bonds, have basically gone up. Yeah. Um, things like volatility has basically gone down. Um, commodities, obviously, is more of a mixed picture in terms of what what they've done, um, and and the same with FX. Um, but but the, the the issue is that that you know we, we we're sort of trying to fit our systems in a backtest. But that best itself is biased because it contains these long secular trends in a lot of different assets. Um and um that, that means that that if I just did a, a rudimentary analysis and said, well, let me look at my back test and answer your question, then I'd say, Well, yeah, in, in bonds, you know, 90% of my profits have come from the long side, but all that's telling me is that bonds have mostly gone up. Um, so it's not really a particularly informative uh, question, um, to be honest. Um, the other thing that people sometimes talk about doing, um, and this is where I'm very much on the same page as, as, um, as um, you know, our other illustrious co-hosts, is to say, well, I should fit my system differently on the long side and the short side. Because it's very obvious, for example, that stock markets behave differently on the way up than they do on the way down. Of course they do. Um, no one's arguing with that the question is whether you can actually infer from that any kind of meaningful statistically significant information about how you should trade differently on the long and the short side um, and uh, the answer is you can't to be honest it's very difficult um, and th- that's partly because in the best case scenarios you've got about the same number of longs and shorts in your back test and you're going to cut your statistical significance in half because you you know you're only using half your data to fit the system and because of the kinds of stuff we use we're always on right on the edge of statistical significance anyway to be honest on an individual market um and then the, the more likely case though is that yeah 80 90% of your positions would have been longs you can't really infer anything meaningful about what happened in the 10% that were shorts you really can't um so it's kind of an interesting question but actually you know to me the only reason you'd ask this kind of question was if you take some action you know if for example you said you know what All my profit. let's take a hypothetical example where we're living in a world where actually most assets you'd have been long and short over the last 40, 50 years. And in that case, you can very clearly see a split where you make all of your money on the long side and nothing on the short side. In that case, there'd be very good kind of evidence to say, well, you should then take action and do something differently on the long side and the short side, and maybe not just trade, maybe not trade on the short side at all. You know, maybe just have a long only system. That would be an extreme case. Uh, or alternatively, you know, if I take half my back test, that's still probably enough data then to form some meaningful opinions about how differently I should trade on the short side, if I still want to trade on the short side. but but we can't do that, you know that we don't live in that hypothetical world. So um I, I kind of find these questions intellectually curious, but, that they're kind of almost a waste of my time, to be honest, because I can't see what I can do that's meaningful about them.
1: Yeah, no, I think you make some great points about the fact that we, you, you, one would definitely need to consider the time frame we're looking at, because you're right, many markets, and especially bonds, of course, have been in a one-way trade for the past forty years, and so that's going to, you know, have an impact on on the on the uh, on the data. Just to answer your question, us, maybe a little bit broadly, I think if you did do a back test of a sort of 50 market portfolio for the last uh, 30, 40 years, you probably will find that most of the profits uh, have come from the long side and probably to the extent of 80, 85% of the returns, not least driven by fixed income for sure. But I think it opens actually another interesting question. And I do agree with you, Rob, that if you, if you do f- um, spend time on this, and you find something that is significant, you you probably should take action on that, even though it kind of violates uh, what we say about trend following, where we treat everything the same. But it, it is something that I've been thinking about um, over the years, whether or not tops in markets are formed differently than, than bottoms, uh, so to speak. So, for example, um, let's just take an example in equities. What we've seen a few times is that it's taken months to form a top. I mean, markets have tried to go higher, it didn't really do, and it kind of stays in a range around the top. And then it rolls over, which is obviously generally good for trend followers because it gives us more time to get out. On occasion, uh, like in late January of 2018, we had a um, kind of a a, a drawdown directly from an all-time high. Maybe you could say the same about COVID actually, um, and, and so that's going to give a different result, uh, certainly for, for trend followers, certainly long-term trend followers. Um, but I also remember that, for example, we've seen now lows, and I t- this could well, well be because of central bank intervention, that lows, at least in financial markets, seems to be formed very quickly, like one day was the low and then off to the races on the other side. I do think that's probably a little bit of because of manipulation in the markets. But it is an interesting question whether psychologically, whether we as humans behave differently when it comes to a top, where our emotions are different to when it comes to a bottom, where our emotions are going to be driven by fear uh, instead of greed. So I do think it's a curious one. I don't know what the I don't have a good answer on that. But but the stats probably will be skewed uh, towards the long side, even though that might be to a large extent driven by something like
0: interest rates. Yeah, I mean, just just to note, like there, there are definitely differences and patterns you can see in the data. So, for example, you know, there's this infamous dead cat dead cat bounce effect, where in risk assets, um, you if you have a, a, a short live a short kind of crash, if you like, then that tends to be followed by the price rebounding, and vice versa. In fact. Um, and um, actually, sorry, not vice versa. Apologies. Right. It only uh, happens on the short it's, side. It does, it's a very distinctive yeah. effect. Yeah. And you see the same thing in volatility. Only that's reverse because obviously a long vol position is is is, is actually short risk. Um, but but the, you know the, the problem is when you then say, well, should I then you know actually put this behavior into my trading system? Well, you know, it's 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 like I said, it's right on the edge of statistical significance. And my belief is that that I should not make any kind of changes or specific changes to my trading system in terms of trading different asset classes differently, trading long and short differently, unless there is extremely strong evidence that should be the case. Because otherwise I know I'm going to be leading myself down the, the path of overfitting. So so for me, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a curious effect that confirms like, the sort of narrative around, you know, the dead cat bounce, you can really see it in the data. But as I said, I don't actually try and exploit it because it's just not big enough of an effect.
1: No, exactly. And I think, again, I think we always uh, caution uh, and suggest that people stick with something that is... Um you know as robust and dependable and not over optimized in any way shape or form so i would i would agree with that anyways anas had a follow up question he says my biggest concern about committing capital to systematic trading strategies is the risk of their alpha being arbitraged away given increase in data and computer power as well as a massive boom in academic literature e- uh, on eg momentum and other factors plus the internet facilitating spreading uh, of these insights faster why should I not be so worried about this? Assuming the answer is that I shouldn't, or at least be less worried about this than um, behavioral biases related to discretionary trading, et cetera, et cetera. I think, honest. let me just take this one first uh, I, because I've heard it so many times. And I think, yeah, if you're depending on, uh, as Rob talked about earlier, uh, your computer's being co-located and, and all other things like that, yeah, there's gonna be, it's going to be arbitrage away for sure, which is also why... Personally, I'm more skeptic towards uh, shorter-term timeframes because I do think you rely on other things than the actual rules. But just go and have a look at the track records of some of these trend followers who've been around for 30, 40, 50 years. That is the evidence. You don't need to look any further. That is the evidence because when just the firm that I work for when we started there wasn't any computers right so we've been through the whole technological revolution um new markets um all of the things you mention and 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 we're doing just fine so uh, I wouldn't worry about long term trend following not working in fact I think as as you suggest it is because it's rooted deep down somewhere in human behavior and that's not going to change of course it doesn't mean that a trend follower can't um mess up a good system um so you still have to take care you know look into that um but i don't think long-term trend following is going to go away i mean we have the longest track records of all strategies you know so um i think i would take a lot of comfort in that on uh, anything you want to add before we jump to
0: the last question i completely agree with you Niels. okay yeah. All right. Last do question. you mind if yeah. we? Sorry, can yeah. we call a halt on the questions? Because um, okay, we'll we'll do that. I, I'm conscious. I'm conscious of, of time, time, and yes. the last the last question is quite a long, multi part. one, So let's leave it for. Another we'll week. leave it for. Yeah,
1: it is a question that just came in. Uh, I think this morning from Yorkim. So Joachim, we're going to deal with that uh, at a later date. Sorry about that, because we do want to before. Rob goes on on his uh, extended holiday. We do want to go through some really important research that he published on his blog post, where people can find it. Of course, I'll link to that in the show notes today. But I'm going to let Rob talk about it because it's not necessarily what it seems, just to settle a, a debate between uh, <laughs> Rob and and Rich and and Jerry. Uh, it's 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 more than that. Um, but but let me let me just give the mic to you and and you talk us through what you found, and I'll. Try and keep up, and hopefully add a little bit of uh, comments along the way.
0: Yeah. So this is this is you know as you know, Niels, when you're writing a, a blog, what you really want to do is pull people in with a kind of clickbait headline and make them think this is going to be a very exciting and interesting and, and controversial thing that you're talking about, uh, and then basically use that as an excuse to serve up, in my case, a whole bunch of kind of interesting financial theory on top of on top. You know, so I I, I kind of feel like my my blog post was. Semi serious in the sense that you know, well, let let's just say the words vol targeting. So there's this long debate about whether you should vol target or not on on this this series, um, and uh, you know, to an extent, I, I've not really engaged with the with the um, the kind of jovial sarcastic comments made by my co-hosts on Twitter about the subject, um, because and there was quite a long we ended up having quite a long discussion and d- debate on on vol targeting last week on the back of. The the, uh, the video you posted on Twitter of, of an alligator being hit with a frying pan, I mean, yeah, exactly. So that 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 stirred up a bit of a debate, and then I published this this post, and that stirred up a bit of a debate. And it, you know, it got a little bit a little bit heated, I would say. And actually, uh, you know, I think I think um people should understand that that um uh, we we all have a great deal of respect for each other, and we all like each other, and all, although we we may see say things on Twitter that that may seem a bit you know kind of aggressive, actually underneath that. Um, that that's not what's going on. I think some other people got a bit, a bit of aggressive, and and uh, you know it's not ne- it's not necessary, guys. I mean it's, you know we're all, we're all on the same side here. Um, and one one thing about this full targeting debate that that was very obvious to me last week is it's not a debate that that, that I will win, um, because um, you know. The the my, my the way I think about stuff is very different from the way that say Rich thinks about stuff. Um, I, I have a great deal of respect for 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 Rich's um, you know intelligence and his creativity and his ideas, um, but but um, you know I, I have no interest in convincing him that that volt targeting is the way to go because there's he basically said there's pretty much nothing I can say that will change his mind. That's that's completely fine um i guess the same is true in in my direction as well um but but so what what's the bigger the, the reason i wrote the post was because uh, i think it was a comment by by jerry saying something like well you'll get a higher CAGR from from not vol targeting um and 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 that was kind of left there and i thought well i'm not sure i can leave that unchallenged um, just just for, the, for those who are not not familiar so CAGR is the compounded annualized growth rate and another more technical term for this is the geometric return. So it's basically saying, um, and it's, this may seem a bit tedious, but it's a very important part of what we're talking about. If I'm going to hold, say, uh, you know, a particular fund or strategy for say ten years, and my expectation is that at the end of that I'll have, you know, let's be be, be bullish five times my initial investment. Um, on average, how much would I have earned every year if I was compounding? And basically, so what you do is you say, well, I've got, I, I, it's going to be five, um, the 10th route of five, um, basically, uh, and that will tell you that you'll be earning, you know, I don't know, off the top of my head, 80% a year or something. So if you earn 80% a year and you're compounding for five years, you'll end up with five times your capital. So your CAGR would be 80%, which obviously would be extraordinarily high. Um, so that's what CAGR is. Um and uh, so I thought, well, I write I write this little post firstly to kind of sort of address whether this point is really true or not, uh, but actually it kind of leads one into a really interesting discussion and debate about about how we evaluate trading strategies that have different characteristics. So let's put the Vol targeting to one side. I'm not going to mention those two words again. Um, I'm going to say, well, this is a very abstract discussion about two different trading strategies which have very different characteristics. So let, let's think about some of the characteristics that, that training strategies have, or well, we can measure their, their mean return. And now I'm talking about what most people think of the mean, which is the arithmetic mean, not the geometric mean. Uh, we can measure their standard deviation, which of course is is a kind of symmetric measure of risk. We can measure drawdowns, we can measure skew. So, you know, trend following classically has a, a positive skew. Short volatility strategies classically have a negative skew. We can measure all these different characteristics, um, and we can measure the CAGR, the geometric return, as well. Now, the the question, the problem we have is this, and it's a nice problem to have actually, um, is is that we can actually tweak the amount of leverage we have in our strategies pretty much at will, um, and we can do that because um, we we're generally not using anywhere near all of our available margin as futures traders. Um, I mean, I have quite an aggressive vol target, and I still use rarely more than about twenty to twenty-five percent of my available margin. So I could actually pump my leverage up by a factor of three quite easily without hitting hitting any uh, margin constraints. Uh, whereas in the long-only investment world, um, you know, we have this whole concept of the efficient frontier, um, which basically is the the kind of avail- what you can achieve without leverage for a, a certain portfolio. Um, and then you know you're not choosing an optimal portfolio. You're basically choosing a portfolio that lies along that line somewhere because you can't achieve anything above that. Because to achieve anything above that would require leverage. Um, so so we're, we're kind of we've got we're lucky, right? We've got this choice of of applying leverage um, to to our uh, strategies, you know, to almost to any degree we like, pretty much within reasonable limits. Um, so so that that kind of means that. Um, in terms of evaluating two different portfolios, there's actually quite a number of different axes we need to think about. We need to think about which statistics are important to us, but we also need to think about how those statistics change with leverage, um, because we can, you know, basically modify the distribution of two strategies using leverage just by multiplying by, you know, a number, which is the additional leverage we're applying or reducing on that, and that will give us give us different answers. So that that's that's kind of the basic. Am I, am I making sense so yeah, far? Yeah, so far so good so far so good so let let's take two competing strategies and because i don't want to mention the the dreaded two word phrase again i'm going to pick uh two strategies which make this difference much starker okay so i'm going to pick a a sort of classic um let's say let's say it's an equity neutral strategy um and uh, it's running with quite a low standard deviation which is quite typical of these things because they they're trying to hedge out a lot of the market risk so so maybe it's got a standard deviation of I don't know, 5%. Maybe it's got an annual mean of 7.5%. So that's a sharp of 1.5, which is extremely good. Uh, And let's say competing against that, we've got a a trend-following strategy, um, which has got um, a, say, a standard deviation of 15% and a mean of, say, 15% as well. So that's a sharp ratio of 1. Now, the question we say then is, okay, which of these two strategies is better? Now, Niels, you and I will immediately say, well, of course it's a trend following strategy. Of course. We don't even we don't need to do any kind of fancy mathematical analysis. Of course it's a trend following strategy. But let's let's put our personal biases to one side uh, and think about which of those two strategies is actually better. Um now, obviously you could be very naive and say, Well, I'm just gonna look at the mean. So the trend following mean is higher, therefore the trend following one is better. Um, or you could take it to a next level of sophistication. And say, well, actually, because I can apply any degree of leverage to these things, and because short ratio is invariant under leverage, so basically, if I if I m- double the leverage on something, I double the arithmetic mean, I also double the standard deviation. So um, I can, if I um, if I double the um, uh, meet the, the leverage on the, um, the the equity market neutral portfolio. The mean goes from 75 to 15%, so now it's got the same mean as the the, uh, trend-following fund. The standard deviation goes from 5% to 10%, so now I have something with the same mean as the trend-following portfolio, but with a lower standard deviation. It seems a better bet, and I can go further. Um, I could increase the leverage on the equity market-neutral portfolio a little bit more so that it has the same standard deviation as the uh, trend-following portfolio, but a higher mean. And now it's uncontrovertibly a, a better a better product, right? Um, so th- this is the, 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 if you are using sharp Ratio as your sole measure of whether something is good or bad or better or worse, that this is the reason why you're doing it. You're doing it because sharp Ratio assumes essentially that you can get as much leverage as you like and that the mean and the standard deviation are the only things that matter um, when you're doing this. So so Niels, what, you know, you want the CTA portfolio, but the equity market neutral has a, a better a better Sharpe ratio, right? So, what what are we missing here? What what's the missing factor?
1: Well, let's look at the risk, perhaps.
0: Well, we've got we've already we've handled that. We've got standard no. deviation. Well, standard deviation oh. is
1: not drawdown, is it?
0: No, drawdown. Okay, so so drawdown is um, a another statistic. It's a different kind of statistic. So, um, drawdown is one of these statistics that changes linearly with leverage. So if your drawdown is, say, 10% and you double your leverage, your drawdown will go to 20%. And that's true of both average and maximum drawdowns. Um, So if you had a ratio like, for example, arithmetic mean to drawdown, that would also be invariant under leverage, and therefore that would still favour the equity market neutral uh, strategy. Now, as it happens, I can tell you that the equity market neutral strategy does have much smaller drawdowns than the trend following portfolio. So, you know, it's it's the one to go for, but what you're right. You're right in the sense that that there's still an awful lot of risk measures that that we're missing out on. Um, now, uh, what? Let me ask you a philosophical question. Actually, oh,
1: you're putting me on the spot.
0: Here. <laughs> but uh, but in a sense, this this is a philosophical discussion to an extent. Sure. Um, why why don't you like drawdown? What why should drawdown be a risk measure? Well, personally, I think that drawdowns are the
1: ones that often trigger. People to make the wrong decision, right? So it's the the, the pain or the emotional pain that comes with drawdowns uh, when they happen to investors that make them potentially make really bad decisions. I know it's a, but philosophically, I think that's one of the challenges. Okay. Drawdowns. So let
0: me let me. I'm going to grab. I'm going to reach over and grab my economist hat. Putting my economist hat on. So as an economist, I'm now going to assume that all human beings are perfectly rational economic actors, and that means that that um, they don't have the, the You can only say, well, drawdowns are good or bad if there's some kind of rational economic reason for it. And I would argue that, oh, because it makes them feel uncomfortable, isn't. So can you think of another another reason? Well, why? drawdown, I mean, of course, uh,
1: strategies with larger drawdowns, obviously that can reduce the compound effect, right? So then we're back to that.
0: Okay. So that, now we're getting somewhere. So this is where it gets interesting. So... The compounded annual growth rate, the geometric return, is is an interesting statistic because unlike the other statistics, it's not fixed with leverage like sharp ratio. It's not linearly dependent on leverage like mean, standard deviation, or drawdown. It actually has a non-linear relationship with leverage. Um, so for most, um, let's just just it, it, pretend that we're dealing with Gaussian normal returns, okay? So let's assume that mean and standard deviation do actually precisely describe the you know the um the trading strategies involved so let, let's assume there's nothing weird going on if you like if that's the case then then basically there's this very famous result called the kelly criteria which which specifies effectively the degree of leverage at which you will get the maximum um geometric return which is the maximum CAGR which also means in you know in basic terms you will end up with more money at the end of 10 years than than somebody with operating at a different level of leverage um, and the, the result essentially says that the higher your short ratio is, assuming Gaussian normal returns, the higher this leverage factor can be and therefore the more money that you will make. Um, so in fact, if you were to do so-called full Kelly targeting, you would actually want to leverage the um, equity market neutral portfolio 30 times. And the reason for that is that, that basically uh, it has a sharp of 1.5. That means the Kelly optimal risk is 150%. We started off with 5%, so we need to apply 30 times leverage to that, uh, at which point we'd be earning you know, um, over 200% a year arithmetic mean return. Um, the CTA portfolio, which was 15 and 15, that's a sharp of 1, so that would be 100%, so you'd be put, applying leverage to that of about 6 times. At which point you'd be earning ninety percent annual return. So, in a pure Gaussian world, short ratio is all because it means you can you can actually achieve the highest geometric return um, for a higher short ratio assets. And the other thing, of course, is the lo- the lower the standard deviation is to begin with, the more leverage you need to apply to to get to this point. Uh, and equity market neutral strategies, as I said, kind of usually have natural leverage that's lower than. The CTA type strategies, so they they need even more leverage. Now there aren't many people out there who would run at these levels of leverage. I mean, maybe some retail traders are without realizing it, but you know, no institution would ever run at that level. So, so what we normally and there's a very good reason for that. First of all, is the fact that things aren't not Gaussian, but let's just move that to one side. The other thing is, of course, we don't know for sure what our short ratio is going to be. Um, and and another reason is that clients. Generally, don't like to have that kind of level of risk. And they're very uncomfortable with it. So, so we generally run at much lower levels of leverage than that. Um, now let's take away the Gaussian assumption and assume we're in a non-Gaussian world. So now, now it gets interesting. And and let let's be just, just make it really simple and assume that the only difference between these two strategies, apart from the mean, apart from the standard deviation, is the skew. Okay. So let let's forget about fat tails, let's just focus on on skew um so the the what basically what the kelly criteria does is say well in a world where you have skew the optimal leverage changes so for example on the cta type strategy you can actually run at a higher optimal leverage because it has positive skew and on the uh, equity market neutral type strategy you can you have to run at a lower leverage because it has negative skew and to explain why that's the case um, negative skew means there's going to be a small number of relatively large negative returns. Okay. Um, let, let's assume that the equity market neutral strategy has a a, a, temp, a single 10, 10% return, negative 10% return in its you know, history. Um, and that would probably be for that kind of strategy, something like March, 2020 or August, 2007, probably. Um, now that means that if you were to run that thing at 10 times leverage, that minus 10% return will become minus 100%. Now, there ain't no coming back from minus 100%, right? That that you, You're finished. Once you're at minus 100%, there's a mathematical way of, of coming back. You're, you're completely dead. Uh, and that means that any leverage over 10 for that particular strategy is going to have a, a, a geometric turn of CAGR of zero, basically. Um, so the 30 times optimal leverage I was saying, pie in the sky, well, actually, anything over 10 is going to be zero. That also means that the optimal leverage, instead of being 30, is going to be somewhere between 1 and 10, you know it's going to be probably 3 or 4 or 5 times sure. for example now the cta type strategy's got positive skew that means that we've got a a small number of oh sorry a large number of relatively small losses let's say that the cta strategy never has a loss bigger than 5% for example well that means that the effective ceiling on its leverage is 20 times um uh, which is actually well beyond the level we were planning to run it at in terms of optimality anyway. Um, so in practice, you know, the, there's no kind of effective bound on the the leverage of the strategy caused by by its skew. Um, so you could, if you wanted to, run that six times leverage. You probably wouldn't want to, but sure. you, you could in theory. There's nothing stopping you. Um, now, what that means in practice is that the 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 the, the, the equity market, usual the CTA strategies, um, you know. Ha- so what are we? What I did in my blog post is basically to say, well, you know, what's the maximum CAGR I can squeeze out of these guys? Okay. Um, I, and that, to do that, you say, well, what's the optimal leverage? And at that optimal leverage, what's the best CAGR you can squeeze out? So in the simple example we've been talking about now, the optimal leverage for the equity market use strategy is probably about three times, which would give you 22.5%, um, I think, annualized return give you a geometric return of perhaps 18%, something like that. Um, the optimal leverage on the CTA strategy is actually six times, you know, which means you could actually get 90% arithmetic return, CAGR of probably 70%, something like that. So actually, when you consider the the non-Gaussian returns and you apply this metric of saying, well, what's the maximum geometric turn I could possibly squeeze out? Um, the, the CTA strategy wins hands down um and this actually is a very important thing to understand because you know we, we know we're always banging the drum about trend following and we say oh, it's got positive skew but it's not necessarily obvious why positive mm-hmm. skew is a good thing like people like positive skew they have a a kind of in the same way you have a preference for 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 small drawdowns which is kind of driven by what I would very harshly as an economist call your cognitive biases. People have a preference for positive skew because of cognitive biases. But what I'm saying is there are actually very sound mathematical reasons why positive skew is a good thing. It means you can run at high leverage. And that means that strategies that look worse on a sharp ratio basis actually are better. Um, So just to very quickly return to the original topic, the reason why I did this blog post was to show that although the positive skew of vol targeting isn't as good as the as it is for non vol targeting, the sharp ratio benefit is much higher. And actually when you factor these two things together, you even in this framework where you consider both of those things, you'd still go for vol targeting. But as I said, I don't want to bang the drum about vol targeting. That's not what I'm trying to get across here. Um, so that that's the basic idea. Now, of course, you can argue that well, you wouldn't really want to run a trend following strategy at six times leverage, you know, that that's still kind of insane. Um, so what I do in the blog post is, is basically, if you like, plot graphs showing the the CAGR as you apply leverage to different strategies, um, and obviously the optimal level, which is the highest point, is better for would be better for a hypothetical trend following strategy. But it's also true that for you know even lower levels of leverage, like more reasonable levels of leverage, the trend following strategy is still better. Um, it, it still, you know, makes make sense if you're running at say twice the leverage to run that rather than to run the the equity market neutral strategy. So anyway, that that's that's it, basically. That's all I had to say. Have you have you got any any questions? Have I made sense? It's like being in a
1: in a class with a professor, I think. <laughs> um putting me on the spot and all of that. So I appreciate that. Have you done your homework? Exactly. Have you done your homework? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> um no, I mean I think First of all, as I said, I think people should go and read the blog post because it's um, it's interesting and it's thorough and it highlights, as you say, some of these things that we may not think about. I think for me, it comes down, and obviously, I'm kind of in the middle because I, you know, I, as I've always said on the podcast, I don't see any evidence in the numbers uh, when I look at different funds um, that apply different, you know, way of doing this. So there's nothing for me really to say, well, it's definitely this one or it's definitely that one. I think your arguments are perfectly fine.
0: No, no, let, let's, I don't, as I said, my question is more, does does this idea of thinking about different strategy returns, you know, forget volt targeting. I don't want, I'm not saying you should come down one side or the other on that, definitely not but does this framework of thinking about maximum CAGR and leverage I, th- I think it's a good way for people to evaluate different kinds of strategies i
1: completely agree um and i think but one thing that is interesting uh, uh, you know when it comes to skewness of course because i do feel that uh, for example even within the CTA community there is definitely some people voicing you know the fact that that oh, CTAs have lost some of their positive skew, etc., etc. But I also think, and I haven't done the the research per se, but you you may know this, but I do think that there is inherently lower skew achieved by longer-term strategies compared with shorter-term strategies. So I can, I mean, I can understand why shorter-term strategies might say, well, we have better positive skew, sure, but it doesn't mean you necessarily have better returns in the long run. Um, So... Um, But yeah, I think it's helpful and I think it's useful and I think people should think about these things because, and and it kind of goes back to one of the, uh, not not specifically, but to one of the issues uh, that we talked about in the very beginning, that investors have favored certain types of quote-unquote hedge fund strategies, many of them. They look very stable as your like your market neutral strategy, right? Relatively low return. Add a add a bit of extra leverage, and and it looks really really good. But maybe they're not thinking about why it it you know how they're achieving those results and what the inherent risks might be in that. Comparing that to a strategy like trend following that may not look as good, but actually turns out to be. You know, excellent uh, in in the long run. So I think it's it's opened up. Uh, I hope it's opened up the eyes
0: of many people. Yeah. Anything else you <laughs> want to add? No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, I, I think we're uh, we're getting on for time as well. So um, well,
1: let's invite yeah. people to go and
0: check it out. Um, yeah. And of course, uh, if you have time, please
1: feel free to go and leave a rating and review in uh, iTunes or in Spotify if you like what you're hearing and the weekly uh, ongoing conversations. And um, next week I'm joined by Alan for another fun and insightful conversation, no doubt. So make sure you send in your questions like you did this week. As always, email them to info, and we'll do our very best um, to answer them next weekend. From Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime... Take care of yourself and take care of each other.